Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Thank you for tuning in again if you are a returning listener and welcome if you are new and and listening perhaps for the first time because of today's guest, Lama Rod Owens. On this show, I really try to draw the connection between ancient wisdom and modern science, you know, East and West, the past and the present. And the big thing that I try to, I guess, reflect on my own practice and to share those reflections and maybe promote conversations that help others do the same who are interested in contemplative practices, who are interested in raising consciousness, and who are interested in taking their yoga practice off the mat or their meditation practice off the cushion and really integrating those benefits into their day-to-day lives. You know, it's an, it's an ideal that all of us, definitely myself included, fall short of all the time. But I think it's really important that we bear that in mind and that we hold ourselves to a high standard and that we at least try to close the gap between the person that we'd like to be or we think we should be or could be and the person that we are today, recognizing that that's always changing and that you know, you're always changing over the course of a day and from day to day. And so I think the really important theme for me and the way this show connects to today's episode is not only, I guess, taking those, uh, taking your practice off the mat, right? But also making whatever value system that's important to you. And perhaps this is especially the challenge for those of us who are inspired by more traditional set of values or a set of values that's outside of your own culture. You've got to make it relevant to your own life and to your own culture. And it's very clear that a lot of those conversations are happening across different yoga communities today, and it's happening very much in the Buddhist community. And I really notice this a lot It's from what I can gather, not only podcasts I listen to, but from when I go back to the States and attend trainings or retreats, that there are conversations that people are trying to have about how to make the Dharma more relevant to their own lives and to their own society. And Lama Rod Owens is someone who is at the forefront of those efforts in the United States, where he is talking about and trying to make the you know ancient tradition of Buddhism relevant to his experience as a black gay man in the United States, and to also make it relevant for practitioners, you know, who are living in a very diverse United States in 2018, yet there's a real disparity, I think, in the reflection of the composition of most Dharma communities, which are predominantly white, and America as a whole. And Lamarado Owens has co-written a book towards that end called Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation which is a book that I would highly recommend. He's also given a series of great talks, including a YouTube talk with Reverend Kyoto Williams, which sort of helped to spark this whole project. 
And I was honored to have Lama Rod on the podcast to hear his perspective, to help me think through some of the questions that I had and to hear about his experience, to hear about his work, to listen to his insights about what he encounters when he tries to promote these important yet challenging discussions in Dharma communities and some of the reactions he gets. And then he gives some very thoughtful advice on how we can move forward. So it was a real pleasure to have him on the podcast. He's someone with a fascinating story. And I think he really embodies the mindful, contemplative qualities that you would want any Dharma teacher to have. But he's also very accessible and and open. And I really like that about him and candid and authentic. And I really like that about him. And I enjoyed our conversation immensely. And I hope, and I believe you will as well. I learned a lot from him and I'm I'm sure you will too. So with that said, I I just want to read a little bit of his bio. Lamarad Owens was officially recognized by the Kaukya School of Tibetan Buddhism after receiving his teaching authorization from his root teacher, the Venerable Lama Norla Rinpoche, when he completed the traditional three-year silent retreat program at Kaukya Tupton Kolin Monastery. Yes, you heard that right. He did spend three years in silent retreat, which this monastery is located outside of New York City, notably. It was during this time that he dealt with years of past pain and trauma and found forgiveness and compassion for himself, what he views as a critical step before truly being able to help others. Since coming out of retreat, he has completed his Master of Divinity degree at Harvard Divinity School. Lamarad also practices, studies, and teaches secular mindfulness and is a teacher with Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, where he is also a faculty member for the organization's teacher training program. He is also heavily engaged in social change activism and has just released a book with Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and Jasmine Sadula entitled Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation. He is the guiding teacher for the Radical Dharma Boston Collective. Now I give you my conversation with Lama Rod Owens. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Well, the first thing I want to do now that we're recording is just to start by thanking you again for taking the time to speak with me. I'm very grateful. And, you know, I, I also, I guess I should just still say this on the gratitude note. I'm very grateful for what you're doing. I've only come across your teachings recently, and I've read through most of Radical Dharma by now, and I've watched a few of your talks. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And it's, it's frankly, it's you're helping to initiate a conversation that I was looking to have in college in the early 2000s when I grew up in a just a, a very white, privileged area in the Midwest, and I went off to college and studied African-American studies and really began to question my race, question class, question a lot of those things around privilege, but that was a very helpful. The problem was I didn't really have people to have a lot of those dialogues with 
And that created a problem when you can break down your identity like that and you don't know how to build it back up. And by facilitating this kind of conversations, you're helping to create that community and make it okay to talk about it. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And I, I just want to note as well, you know, um, I'm sure the conver, you know, to people in our audience who, who might not be Buddhist practitioners, there's something called a, a noting exercise or labeling thoughts where when you're meditating, you simply label the thought, you know, anger, frustration, boredom. And so, you know, I think it can be helpful to just note or label that undoubtedly this conversation can be difficult or uncomfortable at some points. And I like how you very openly say that your intention is to provoke and you name it, you know, and I suspect that can happen here as well. But I also think that just the process of having this conversation will be cathartic. And ultimately, that's how we become liberated as, as you've talked about. So also just kind of want to name that up front. Let's start if you don't mind. And I do really want to get into the heart of your work. But I am curious about your background. I found very interesting, sort of you grew up in the South, your mother was a preacher. And so I'm curious, and perhaps if you can share with those in the audience who haven't read more about your bio, you know, how did you come across the teachings of, of Buddhism? Right. Well, I think my first exposure to Buddhism came perhaps in college, where I ended up dropping out of a Christian ethics class and later on enrolling in a world religions class, trying to seek, I guess, an introduction to so many of the different paths that I uh, had no idea were, you know, in the world. And in that class, I was introduced to Buddhism. I found it interesting on an intellectual level, but never interested enough to practice meditation. So I just kind of kept that interest as I moved through college, graduating and moving to Boston um, into a community surrounded by Buddhist practitioners, which was great, you know, because I really loved talking about Buddhism, but I didn't really like practicing Buddhism. And about a year into my kind of tenure in the house, you know, I really discovered that well, I began to experience and connect to depression, severe clinical depression. And that actually led me into meditation after I met a healer who agreed to work with me on the condition of me learning to meditate and sustaining a practice of meditation. Yeah, that really resonates with my own experience as well. I, you know, I was very into reading a lot of Buddhist books for a while and spent years before I ever went on an actual retreat. And I try to encourage people who get into it, just start practicing, you know, when you're ready. So let's dive into your, your book, you know, Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love and Liberation. For those who aren't familiar at all with the book, can you kind of give an overview of the message and then we'll begin to unpack that? Right. So essentially, the heart of Radical Dharma is our understanding that there can be no ultimate or absolute liberation without first a social liberation. So there has to be a focus on our relationships with one another before we can actually earn our experiences of ultimate or absolute liberation. And of course, this conversation began between myself and uh, my friend and colleague, Reverend Angel, um, about four years ago, 
um, during the summer of Ferguson and the killing of Michael Brown. And that deeply impacted me. And it was through conversations with Reverend Angel that I began to really give voice to how I could use Dharma and my positionality as a Dharma teacher to address the the emergence of Black Lives Matter and um, racialized violence and police brutality. So we started really talking as friends. Later on, we were asked to do a dialogue for a magazine called Buddha Dharma. That dialogue was filmed and transcribed for the magazine. The video of our talk uh, was released on social media where it kind of went viral. And from the feedback that we were getting from people watching the video, we really felt like it would be beneficial for us to have this conversation around Dharma and race really in front of people um, and gathering. So we planned that and we used our live dialogues as a foundation um, to create the book Radical Dharma. And we invited our third co-writer, Dr. Yasmin Saidula, um, to join us as a third voice in the work. And essentially, that was the emergence of Radical Dharma. Excellent. So perhaps that's a good way to get into it. You know, I'd be curious to hear you elaborate a a little bit on what you just said. You talked about how those conversations helped you to reframe kind of your own understanding of uh, what was emerging through things like Black Lives Matter through the Dharma. Can you elaborate on that, please? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, being in a community within you know, Western Dharma communities, you know, there are so many things that we don't talk about publicly. There are so many things that teachers kind of bypass really talking about in front of groups. And I, and Reverend Angel too, you know, we were teachers who were actually having these conversations and doing these kinds of teachings where we were putting social issues in conversation with Buddhist philosophy and Dharma principles. And however, when Ferguson started and Black Lives Matter really started to emerge, it was really the situation, at least for me, where I began to really connect to a lot of racialized trauma in my experience. And I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was rely on my Dharma practice or rely on my meditation practice and some of the supportive practices that I'd learned to to care for myself. As I was doing that work and also beginning to have more conversations with Reverend Angel, it really began to be clear that I needed to do more. And as a member or as a supporter of this new emergent movement here in America. I wanted to to really do my part in helping to challenge some of the forms of violence within Dharma communities where I spent most of my time and continue to spend most of my time. So for me, it was a matter of, of ethical responsibility. You know, so what was right for me to do in my position as a Black Dharma teacher? You know, do I continue just to teach and to bypass my reality as a, a Black man in America? Or do I begin to bring my own process to the way that I taught and express Dharma? And how could I do that in a way that was healing and restorative 
and impactful, and in a way that invited all of us to begin to talk about our experiences around being racialized. And of course, racialization or race or racism is just one thing that I talk about. I talk about many, many forms of identity and power and hierarchy. Um, And I try to put all these things in conversation with Buddhism and the practice of Dharma. Let's talk for a second on a you know, to start out with race and, and perhaps the whiteness in the Dharma community. You mentioned for a second forms of violence. Can you say more about the forms of violence that you encountered in Dharma communities? I think, you know, my the primary form of violence that I continually face was just simply being erased, where I am a Black person. I grew up in the Black community. There are ways of being within the Black community that are celebrated, but when I try to do those same things, Within Dharma communities, I was heavily censored. You know, so for instance, you know, I grew up with this idea of how speech and how communicating with one another is really this this kind of playful thing. You know, it's playful, it's joyous, it's it's a way that we create and build community. It's the way that we relate to one another. You know, we call it talking shit, or we call it you know back. In, um, in the 60s and 70s, you called it playing the dozens, but these really playful ways that we use speech to relate to one another. But when I would do that within Dharma communities, it was called unskillful speech or idle talking, you know? But that's how I grew up speaking, you know? So one of the things that I began to do early on was to embrace my cultural way of speaking, my cultural way of being in front of people and using language to invite people in, to be playful, and to, to have this foundation of back and forth with people. And so when Dharma communities say, oh, you can't do that, that's not you know, part of our community, for me, that's an act of violence because that it actually erases a really important part of how I grew up. So this erasure, the, the ways in which we erase people is such an important part of how this erasure is something that I often try to push back and try to bring people's attention to. You know, that when we walk into a Dharma space for our practice, you know, we, we've taken on this etiquette of becoming someone different or becoming something different. And I want to, to kind of challenge that. You know, I want people to bring their whole selves into a space, including everything that they grew up with, their culture, their identity, their, you know, their rituals. I want them to bring that into the space because that's their most authentic self. And I think that liberation and dharma begins through the practice of authenticity. And then, you know, there are other ways in which conversations, particularly the the theme and subjects of conversations, are heavily censored. You know, there's sanghas and dharma organizations where you're explicitly told that you can't talk about certain things as a teacher. And I think that those are just really sophisticated ways in which, you know, systems of power and abuse are maintained. Can you give an example? What are some of those things you're not supposed to talk about as a teacher? Sexuality social issues, pop culture, you know, we're not, you know, supposed to talk about ethical misconduct within organizations. All of that's kind of a taboo, you know. Teachers aren't, in many traditions, aren't supposed to be vulnerable on the teacher's cushion because that begins to impact 
how students have a kind of faith or devotion to the teaching. So if you see the teacher struggling, then that may impact a lay student's kind of belief or reliance on the teachings. And of course, I come from a really open, vulnerable place when I teach because I think it's important for people to understand the challenges of practicing Dharma in a contemporary world, you know. And I do it not to challenge your faith in Dharma, but I do it to actually strengthen your faith in Dharma because you have to see that even I as a teacher struggle, so it's okay for you to struggle as well. And if you engage in the struggle and engage in the work, then you will see the fruition of practice. The teacher to be vulnerable means that you may reveal that dharma is difficult, you know, and that that may impact a student's practice, you know. And I completely have an opposite view. I think that it's important for me to be really open about the ways in which I struggle with dharma because it helps students understand that it's okay to struggle, that the practice of dharma is difficult for anyone. You know, and I think the practice of dharma is difficult for a beginner just as it is difficult for an enlightened teacher. You know, we're all trying to be in this relative world, trying to relate to one another. But I think there are still just obstacles that we're all struggling with. So vulnerability, openness, directness, transparency is actually one of my most important tools as a teacher. Yeah, I like that. And I appreciate you sort of shedding light on that for the rest of us who don't have really insight into the expectations of teachers. That's fascinating. Do you find that's even more the case in a more hierarchical lineage of Buddhism, which some say something like Tibetan maybe? Is is that a little less the case than Zen? Or is this pretty much true across the board, you think? I feel like this is true across the board. Even though I felt like my Tibetan teacher's have practiced a certain level of vulnerability, which has been useful for me. But I really believe that it should go even further, you know. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, it's also important to take into account that often there's not, there's not like these written rules for this. It's just the etiquette. This is the etiquette. You don't do that, you know. And sometimes people don't even tell you. It's just like you should just know that you shouldn't talk about these, these things within the community. Or you shouldn't present teachings in certain ways. And that's, you know, often how our etiquette as teachers are transmitted. You know, you just kind of see what isn't done and you just do what everyone else is doing. And I've, I've just never been into that. I came into the world or spent so many years beginning in my teens doing activism and social justice work. And I have this natural kind of tendency to push against hierarchy and um, authority. And I really celebrate and value being creative. Those are also really important values for me. Along with vulnerability, creativity is really key for me. I want to kind of dive into for a moment, you know, because what you're saying really touches on this about the, how do we put it, the kind of particular kind of liberalism, you know, in white progressive Dharma communities, you know, and I'm curious as someone in particular who grew up in the South and dealt with issues of race there, you know, sort of what that experience was like, and then comparing that to what you encounter in Dharma communities, because it's very clear that a lot of white progressives from the West Coast or the North like to think of themselves as liberal. Yet, when you get into that, when you unpack it, there's 
It's not that they're not progressive in some senses, but there's a, a different kind of problems. And this is an old idea, right? Like Martin Luther King talked about this. I'm wondering if you can illuminate that for the rest of us who yeah, don't have insight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. King talked about this. James Baldwin talked about this quite a bit. And that, you know, growing up, quite honestly, like liberalism wasn't the word <laughs> that I would associate with my growing up around white folks in the South. That would have been a tremendous step forward if we could get to liberalism. So I didn't really get that. I didn't get liberalism. I knew what, you know, in, in my relationship to white folks, I knew that there were certain things that people were cool with and there were certain things that people weren't cool with. You know, in the South, there's this etiquette or this culture where we're just nice to everyone. There's this way in which you have this kind of hospitality, this kind of kindness, even if you may hate someone, you know, and it's kind of fake. You know, this kind of Southern hospitality is really superficial, super fake. And you kind of know that, you know, but as I was when I was growing up, I didn't really get that 100%. And then I moved to the North and started to experience another kind of white person, you know, and it can be really misleading to be around white folks who identify as liberal. And you're like, oh, great, we're on the same page, you know. However, when we start moving into some of these kind of positionalities of progressiveness or radicalism, then you begin to see a lot of, of, of shifting, you know, a lot of like uneasiness. So sometimes white liberalism looks like, well, you know, yeah, I, I'm not a racist, you know, and I love Dr. King, you know, and I saw the movie, I saw the documentary, I went to a march once, and I have a black friend, <laughs> you know, which is all well and good, I'm sure, you know, but then it's like, okay, let's begin to challenge one's orientation to whiteness itself. And then that's where we begin to see liberalism really fall apart. You know, you see how inadequate that positionality is because it's not enough to take us into the depths of how whiteness has been constructed within this country. You know, whiteness is a deliberate construction within American culture. You know, it was deliberately created to create opposition to black bodies, to black people, you know. So the more white folks start getting into progressive positionalities, into radical positionalities, the more they're going to hurt. You know, the more suffering is going to become evident because you're moving into confronting an identity location that has only been created through the oppression of others. And you have to actually develop a relationship to that reality. And beneath that reality is really the experience of a lot of sadness and grieving, you know. And if you're just liberal identified, then you're not going to be interested in doing that work. You think your work is just going to be liking Dr. King and having black friends and not saying anything racist, you know, which has nothing to do with the overall system of, of whiteness in which you're consciously and unconsciously participating in at the expense of not just black people, but at the expense of so many other groups of people in, in the world who are being marginalized and who are being, you know, kind of controlled and oppressed by the construction of whiteness. I'm curious, you know, when you try to have these conversations in Dharma communities, you know, can you perhaps give a specific example of an issue and then 
it's been broached, whether it's by you or Reverend Williams, and then talk about the problems with how that might be received and dealt with. Well, you know, there there's so many sophisticated mechanisms of bypassing, you know, which we have to confront even before we begin to talk about race, you know. So, for instance, if, you know, I show up to a talk and I begin to talk about whiteness, it's, it's a conversation that I often initiate, you know, and there's a lot of denial of that. It's a lot of like, you know, saying that, you know, you know, what does race have to do with Dharma? What does race have to do with Buddhism? You know, so there's a, a, a pushback. But for me, since I've done so much work with my orientation towards whiteness, then that's something that that's a kind of pushback that I know is going to happen. And I begin to, to kind of move through that, you know, so I don't take that pushback personally, you know, nor do I take on kind of the suffering um, that that begins to happen in a space when when particularly white folks begin to start looking at, you know, some of these realities. You know, I am as a black person with in white audiences, my role, my job is to witness and to hold space. You know, and then white folks' jobs is to to actually sit with, to experience and to move through the realities of the woundedness, the sadness, and ultimately the trauma that comes from racialization. Um, so often, you know, especially these days, you know, groups know who I am and what I do, and so they're open to the conversation. So I don't get so much feedback now, but there's a willingness to go there, you know. But still, if I go there and I have this conversation and I can actually engage people and the back and forth, you know, still there's a way in which you can protect yourself from actually getting into really serious work around this. So my aspiration is simply to plant the seeds in these groups and to know that to do this really in-depth work and undoing whiteness is really going to take communities of white practitioners supporting one another um, and doing this exploration of identity. Yeah, I'm curious to hear you say more about that because in the book, you talked about a couple of things. One was having conversations among people of color and allowing white people to listen in, right, which is kind of the premise behind Radical Dharma. And then in the book, you also talk about white people need to be able to have conversations among themselves and say things that, you know, they're afraid to say and feel uncomfortable. So can you talk a little more about that? Yeah. Well, you know what? It's really important if we're occupying an identity of privilege to position ourselves somehow to listen to others who are occupying identities with lesser privilege. And that listening actually becomes a mirror for us. We're able to see and hear the ways in which we're participating consciously and unconsciously in systems that perpetuate harm, you know, for people uh, and marginalized groups, you know. So Radical Dharma was really important because it was like, oh, here's this conversation between Black teachers, or particularly just Black people, period, that maybe you've never heard before, and here you go, you know. Use this conversation to inform the conversations you can have with other white people about the work that you all should be doing to do this unpacking of whiteness for yourself, you know? So, you know, Radical Dharma, in Radical Dharma, we're giving permission 
for white people to listen to this conversation, to be present to this conversation, you know? And then we hope that that begins to inform the ways in which you begin to have this conversation with other white people, you know? And we, I, I think that's really important, you know? I can't have the conversation for you, but it's important that white groups are being held accountable to some extent, not to a huge, huge extent, but to some extent, white groups should be held accountable by, you know, people of color groups and, 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 you know, black groups. You know, there has to be a kind of a dialogue because whiteness is really hard to point out. Whiteness is really hard to see. Any position of power and dominance is really hard to see because it's normalized. You know, it's just normal to be me. It's just normal to be white. It's just normal to be a cisgendered man. It's just normal to be rich. And you don't really get to see that there are so many people in the world who are not in that position of power, in that position of, of privilege. And so you have to listen to people in, in these other positionalities talk about their experiences because it begins to show you how the position that you have is actually comes at the expense of the oppression of others. So white groups doing this work, it's important to get feedback from, you know, people of color, from black people, because it can act as a mirror. But you're continuing to do your own work by getting some feedback from people of color. I'm glad you said that. I wanted to ask about it because it seems like an important idea, that kind of, you know, safe space where white people could say the things they're afraid to say, but at the same time, it could turn into an echo chamber for sheltered ideas, you know? So how does that actually work? How do people get feedback, for example? Do they have the conversation among themselves? And then does a, how is that shared then and feedback received from communities of color? Yeah. I mean, I think it looks different, you know, for different communities and different groups. One thing that I suggest is that when you're, when you're putting together these groups, it really should be, you know, white allies who have done a lot of this work for themselves, you know, and those allies really, they have this responsibility within all white groups to really challenge people to do this work, you know, and that's really important, you know. And then if that's happening, then you begin to develop relationships with people of color, you know, with facilitators, with trainers who are trained and who have taken on a little bit of this responsibility to do education within white communities, you know. Every pe- you know, person of color, a black person, it's not their job to educate. You know, it's not their job to be a facilitator, you know. But there are those of us who have actually formally taken on this role because we feel as if we have the ability and the capacity to do this actual work for white communities, you know. But I understand what my work is. I understand what the work of white communities are. And when I engage in this collaboration, then it's, it's for me to just offer feedback reflections and to give this work back to white communities to continue to do, you know. But those pieces really have to be present. You need white allies in these groups who get the work, who can really push people, and you need to be in collaboration with, with advi- people of color advisors and so forth who can help inform the work. Yeah, that was really on display for me. I'm, I'm part of a meditation teacher training that's two years long, and 
the training was in the Bay Area each time. And overwhelmingly, no surprise, very, it was overwhelmingly a white and liberal crowd. And when issues of race were brought up, um, there was a lot of what you described, there was a lot of white guilt and people not knowing what to do with it and people not having worked through it before. And then I can imagine there was some transference there, some expectations of just... Yeah, so that's a common thing. It's, oh, what do I do with this guilt? Well, you don't do anything with it. You have to feel it. Right. And people yeah. were uncomfortable sitting with it, so they were trying yeah. to put it on someone else. Or Yeah. yeah. That's, that's violence. That's what happens. Like, white people feel uncomfortable, and then it turns into active violence. And we've been seeing it so much these past few weeks. And that uncomfort, you know, that discomfort It's like, oh, I see this random black person in some particular space. They've made me uncomfortable. I'm calling the cops, you know. And when you're unable to sit with that discomfort, then it begins to turn into a transference onto black bodies. Your discomfort is transferred to a black body. And that transference begins to be interpreted as danger, you know, because you've completely externalized, you know, your unwillingness to sit with your own discomfort, you know. That's how it works and hierarchy works, particularly if you're in a position of power or identity location of privilege, then you have this privilege of projecting your insecurities onto those with lesser privilege, you know, and then shaping those people in whatever way you choose to in order to make yourself feel better. You know, so you have to, again, James Baldwin, you know, has often in his work evoked the the work of white people being to face and to hold their trauma, you know, instead of trying to run away and instead of trying to bypass it, to ignore it, just hold it, sit with it, feel it, be uncomfortable. So much of it is, I mean, people were so uncomfortable sitting with it and they were very uncomfortable having the conversation, you know, and there are several layers of that. There's a lot of white America just never wanted to talk about it. Um, a lot. Then there's some people who maybe wanted, like you said, wanted to talk about it up to a point, but then when it started to go really deep into their own identity, they stopped there. And then there's other people as well. And I've noticed this, you know, kind of when I'm back in the US and sort of like a community, like I mentioned the meditation one, there's definitely the element of virtue signaling as well. You know, there's on the one hand, the negative is there's the fear of being the white person who says something stupid or the man who says something sexist or that, you know, even among very well-intentioned people, you know, and that can be reinforced of a culture where, you know, people are jumping on each other. And then there's there's the virtue signaling, right? There's the people who wanting to be, oh, but I'm the white guy who gets it, or I'm the man who gets it, or I'm the... So how do we cut through that? Because I, I noticed there's a lot of people on the left and kind of the social justice warrior crowd who kind of can undermine it sometimes by trying to... You know what I mean, right? By the virtue signaling, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That, that virtue signal is really people saying, well, you know, I'm white, but I'm not that that bad. You know, I'm actually better than you, you know? So it's another way in which power begins to play, to play itself out in terms of like status and role play. It's like, I'm white, but I'm not that bad, you know? And I'm more woke than you, than you are, you know? So that's going to happen if you're not in collaboration with 
marginalized groups who are doing work in these areas. You know, there are two situations. The first situation, which I'm, what I'm actually talking about now, is like you're just out in the world, you're in groups doing this work, then it's important to be in collaboration with groups that are marginalized groups, people of color groups, what have you, you know. That's really important. because, And you also, you always are having to listen to people of color if you're talking about doing work around whiteness, you know. That's really critical. But if you're talking about just, you know, being in groups where this is coming up, you know, it's, you know, again, it's, it's like there's a kind of narcissism that comes with kind of occupying positions of privilege and power, you know, where the, the positionality, the power, the control, the privilege actually creates an obstacle in terms of how one listens to those who are less privileged, you know, or who, who maintain less power within a space or within a society, you know, and we have to rely on feedback from others in the group, again, they're telling us, you know what, you know, maybe there's more work for you to do, you know, but the more intersections of power and privilege one possesses, the harder it is for people to listen and, and to change, you know. So again, it's like the community piece is how are you getting feedback? How are people reflecting you, mirroring your behavior, mirroring your beliefs, you know, and how are you being challenged to hold space for what you're getting back in terms of feedback? In the book, when you were talking about the difficulties of having these conversations, at one point you said something that really caught my attention. You said, you know, our, our goal is to have these kind of conversations in a way that don't fall into the usual trap of identity politics and something along those lines. And I'm wondering if you can sort of define what your understanding of identity politics is and what do you mean by some of the, the trappings and the pitfalls of falling into them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a really good question because everyone has a different, different definition of identity politics. When I practice identity politics, I am actually saying, okay, there is meaning behind identity and it's significant on the social relative level and we have to pay attention to that. And sometimes the work to practice self-care to undo identity positions of power has to be done within groups of people who share that identity. And we do that work within these affinity groups in order to learn how to come back and to be with others who are different than us. You know, to be with others in a way that's less violent, less controlling, less manipulative, you know, and so forth. That's my understanding of identity politics, you know, and sometimes people, when people say identity politics, oft, sometimes they mean, oh, like everything is viewed through a particular lens of identity. You know, all one's, you know, someone's choices is made through a particular identity, how one votes, where one lives, how one thinks about political issues. And I think that's important, but I want to think more critically about that in terms of using uh, identity politics in order to figure out how to get the support and help that we need with others who are similar to us and how to create inclusive, integrated um, communities at the same time. Right. Can you give an example of, of where identity politics 
in your view, is, is problematic? Well, when we refuse to vote for women, you know, where we maintain these, you know, kinds of beliefs that only certain gendered folks can do certain things. You know, so as a man, I'm only going to vote for a man in power, you know, or as a black person or a black man, I'm only going to vote for black people. I'm only going to believe black people, you know, because I'm really identified in my blackness, you know. So that's how identity politics and that's why identity politics often gets a bad rap, you know. But again, I challenge that more. I see identity politics as a way to heal to transform, to break through some of the negative impacts of identity. But I'm also really interested in embracing identity at the same time, you know. So all of that can happen with a really mature, open, transparent relationship to identity. Well, a lot of the things you're saying, I mean, if one can step back from a lot of normal American cultural political dialogue and not be cut up in it. A lot of the things you're saying, I think we can sort of look at as sort of just meta principles, kind of true across cultures. You know, you talked about basically at the beginning, making Dharma relevant to your own culture. And if you look at anywhere the Dharma has gone, that's been true. And that's true for any religion, right? Or any belief system, you simply have to make it relevant to your own experience. And I think so much of meditation and Dharma, it's about working with your own identity, right? It's about coming to understand the self and the self is constructed of these different facets of your identity. Mm -hmm. But that's really hard to do, you know? And so that's why often in American Dharma circles, the principle of no self is so emphasized. You know, white, like white dominant Dharma communities love emptiness teachings because it helps them to bypass the suffering of the relevant. Mm, say more you know? about that. Well, it's how the suffering of whiteness is something that we can completely bypass. You know, where often from white practitioners, you know, if they tell me, oh, I don't suffer, I'm actually, I'm, I'm in this position of power. And when people make those statements, they think that's a really progressive statement. It's actually um, quite an ignorant statement, you know, because you, you, you haven't yet seen or experienced the woundedness that actually comes from racialization. You know, that there's actually an experience of discomfort beneath this position of power. So when we don't have access to experiencing that discomfort, then you say, oh, you know, maybe these emptiness teachings on yourself, maybe like, you know, maybe that's where I should be instead of just trying to create something that's maybe not my reality, you know. I'm curious, in the time since you've published the book, which was, was it published 2016? Over the last couple of years, how have these efforts been, I guess, not only the conversations been evolving, but how has that translated into actual action in terms of Dharma communities? You know, I, I seem to follow Spirit Rock, I think the most just because through their newsletters, I notice a difference in sort of their their language and the events they're holding. I'm just curious about to what extent you feel these dialogues are are increasing and they're actually turning into meaningful action in Dharma communities. Oh, I think people have been using the book to actually for the first time have legitimate conversations around these issues. I think those conversations have led to a kind of a rethinking 
of how the community is organized and what more the community can do. I think before radical dharma, I think we didn't really have really dharmic language to frame the reality of racism or racial injustice. And I think radical dharma has given so many communities language and momentum to move forward in this work, you know. And so there are all kinds of radical dharma reading groups happening all over the world. There are, you know, radical dharma, you know, kind of sitting groups now that are happening here and there. And more and more sanghas are really getting interested in organizing more rounds, you know, having these kind of dialogues and conversations, you know, and I see that more and more too, just, you know, often I'm there for the conversation, but I see these different kinds of, of topics and gatherings and meetings happening in different sanghas, which is great um, to see that. So there's actual direct impacts um, occurring in our community, and there's much more to do. This is, you know, Radical Dharma was just the beginning. You know, we're all, you know, the Radical Dharma writers, myself, Reverend Angel, and Yasmin, we're all, you know, preparing our next books to continue this dialogue. So when you offer a, a retreat, and I've noticed that you have some Radical Dharma retreats, sort of what does that look like? You know, in what ways it's, is it similar to, you know, a traditional, whatever traditional retreat is, and in what ways is it different? I think it when I do like a Radical Dharma-themed retreat on my own, I really model it after the tradition of, whatever sangha I'm working with. You know, so there's lots of meditation, there's lots of silence. I politicize silence often. Actually, I politicize everything. When I say politicize, I mean that every single thing that we do, I want to link back to how we're creating communities outside of this retreat, how we're establishing interpersonal relationships that are based on power and hierarchy. You know, I want us to think about how to use every aspect of a meditation practice to disrupt systems of violence within the larger world. You know, so you're going to get a lot of these basic practices, but I do the work of helping you to link watching your thoughts and holding breath, um, holding space for a thought to the ways in which you're not holding space for your anger in the world and how you're reacting to these things that come up that actually help to perpetuate violence. You know, so I'm always making these links. And I really bring in the social into the teachings. You know, I, you know, I want people to start thinking about integration. You know, I want you to start thinking about mindfulness and anti-oppression. I want you to start thinking about doing loving kindness practice of meta and really focusing on these parts of ourselves that we just habitually ignore and bypass. I tell people at the beginning of the retreat, I'm not really here to make you happy. I'm here to offer tools so, so you can do this really hard work of getting free. And that's not going to feel good. You know, so when we all, when the, my co-writers and I get together and do radical drama retreats on a larger scale, then those retreats are very much about training um, and how to have the conversation and doing a lot of body-based work where a lot of our inhibitions, our fear are really lodged, you know, so we get people into their bodies and we have people 
have these conversations, well, well, we help people have these conversations and an awareness of what's happening physically, you know, so you're holding space for all of this and moving forward in dialogue. And so we call, you know, our radical Dharma retreats are called boot camps or conversation retreats. And this is really important because we want people to leave these retreats with tools that they can take back to their sanghas and their community groups to do this work. And I'm going to give you a chance before we we go to sort of let people know about your retreats. Because I I would like to ask a larger question going back to kind of the bigger cultural context, you know, of these conversations. And you touch on this in the book is, you know, there, (laughs) this particular moment, there was a certain anxiety and for others, perhaps relief, you know, around the end of the Obama presidency, the first black president. And now we're in this moment of Trump, who in a lot of ways, you know, his appeal to his supporters was that he is willing to say things to, you know, confront people to have different conversations. And I think it's interesting, even among those who really don't like him, there is this moment where we're finally willing to talk about things. I, I think there's an interesting case to be made for kind of Trump as the shadow in a, in a Jungian sense. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you could elaborate on how you see these conversations unfolding in this particular moment in the era of Trump. What's the connection? You know, it was, it was interesting. We, we really didn't know how the elections were going to fall. But what we knew is that we had to get the book out before the elections. You know, we felt like the book would be helpful for people post-election. And I think that's exactly what's happened. I think the shift that we've experienced nationally is that all these things that a few people have been talking about is really just apparent. You know, white supremacy is very visible and it's real. Patriarchy is very visible and real. Capitalism is very visible and real and real. The privileges of the 1% that's very visible and real. And so you actually have these things that you can't ignore anymore, you know? And so that, that actually informs the conversation where it's like, okay, let's stop pretending that this doesn't exist because it does exist. So how do we talk about this now? You know, where it's like white supremacy and, and patriarchy and things like that, you know, these terms are really quite common now. I remember even in maybe 2013, 2012, where to hear white supremacy on TV, anyone say that on TV, it was just like a shock. You know, now it's just so common, you know, and I think people are able to name particularly what we're working with. It's not just racism that we're struggling with. It's white dominance, white supremacy, it's patriarchy, you know, it's capitalism, all that's so much more clearer. And I think that in our, in, in Dharma communities, radical Dharma has helped a lot of people wrap their minds around these ideas so that we can actually bring our integrated Dharma practice into trying to figure out what's happening on a larger scale in this world. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I I think white supremacy, it's a term we're seeing more and more. And I think it's one worth unpacking because a lot of people, I think, still think of white supremacy and they think of burning crosses in the KKK. Mm -hmm. And so if there's not that, then it sounds like a gross exaggeration. And I'm wondering, can you define white supremacy and and what you mean by that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the same thing. You know, people see burning crosses in the law where if you're white, you're a part of that. You know, so white supremacy is the centering of whiteness in every every aspect of our communities, every aspect of our lives. 
you know, it is the preference, the the preference, the the valuing of what is considered white, you know, these principles of whiteness. And, you know, if you're white, you're growing up and you're like, what are you talking about whiteness? Well, that's that's exactly the issue. It's, it's so normal that you actually don't understand what whiteness is, you know. You know, it's like asking a fish how the water is, and the fish is like, what water? Like, I'm just swimming in this. What are you talking about? This is water. You know, that's essentially white supremacy. It's like we're swimming in it, you know, and it's apparent for, you know, particularly black and people of color. You know, it's just like really, I know exactly what it is. I feel it. I see it. I experience it. You know, but for white people, not so much. You don't sense it. It's very difficult to see unless you're in a conversation. And those conversations with people of color, black folks, actually helps you develop a lens to seeing into whiteness. But, you know, basic questions like... Hey, what are you the minority? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, here in America, you know, we have a really difficult relationship with history. You know, our history, <laughs> strangely enough, is being erased. You know, we have these these models make America great again. I'm I'm not sure what that means. When was America great? You know, because the the con well the it seems to be that when America was great was when we were all segregated and you know when you know people were being deeply marginalized and and discriminated against. You know, I I can't help but to understand and make America great again as nothing but a white supremacist motto, a rallying cry, really, you know, so make America great again, let's, let's reestablish whiteness again, you know, but whiteness has always, always been established. So what I actually see is like a kind of terror from white folks where it's like, maybe people are beginning to see that whiteness has been this really violent thing that's happened to us. You know, and that maybe if we look at our history, we'll see that very clearly through through examples of exterminating indigenous people, enslaving black folks, the abuse that Asian Americans have, have suffered, you know, through the building of the railroads and the concentration camps during World War II and the early drug policies against Chinese Americans. Like, you know, you know the, our history has been nothing but one act of violence against people of color, one after the other, really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I guess one thing I'm really aware of as I'm abroad is, you know, it's sort of, it's just tribalism. You know, whatever group, every group's caught up in their own tribe, whether it's your nationality, your race, your your liberal tribe, your conservative tribe. And so, I feel like at times, there's so many times where I'm having a conversation, you know, with someone like yourself, and I really find so much common ground, you know, and I could talk a lot. And I see a lot of, I think of a lot of things that I could say where it would make a lot of other white people uncomfortable or conservative people uncomfortable with, say, talking about systemic racism, right? And racism in the criminal justice system. But because a lot of my friends are liberal, I have allies that I can talk to. And if I have those conversations, it's okay. I'm not going to kind of be excommunicated from my tribe, my friend group, which is predominantly liberal. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that there are certain do's and don'ts among progressives as well. You know, so 
I've been abroad since 2010. I was only back for one year from 2013 to 2014. I went to uh, get my master's in education at Stanford. And I noticed there was a certain rhetoric that had changed even from the time when I was an undergrad. So I went to college. I was at Brown, very little school where I saw you speaking in the fall from 2000 to 2004. And there's a lot of talk around equity in education, right? And so if you unpack what equity in education is, there's an assumption under that that equity in education means certain groups are underrepresented, right? Which means certain groups are overrepresented. And the assumption is that all of that is from historical racism. And that may be true, but it's an assumption. But I find to even begin to to question that assumption, right? Or to even have a more, try to have a more nuanced conversation. Like for example, to talk about Asian Americans as a group monolithically is, makes no sense, right? And if we look at Asian Americans, there's actually a lot of diversity. Certain groups, not only individually, but certain groups are well above the median income, but there are certain groups that are well below it and they're disproportionately in poverty. And there are certain groups that are disproportionately overeducated and certain or more educated and certainly group, certain groups that are less educated. But I feel like when you begin to question those assumptions, I felt that it began to get very uncomfortable, you know, and people talked about safe spaces, but they're actually not creating a safe space for other kinds of conversations. So I'm, I'm wondering how we kind of cut through kind of the, once again, I would call it well-intentioned progressivism of these communities, or, or if I'm missing something, please t- tell me what I'm missing. Yeah, I just, it's, for me, it's a matter of disembodiment and embodiment. So I think that because, well, particularly in academic spaces, there's this reality of disembodiment. So we're not actually in tune with our bodies and our bodies are actually really important tools, instruments, really important gauges and how we can actually develop authentic direct relationship with one another, you know, where we're not just like, you know, these generalized, you know, identities like Asian or black, or we, you know, we're, nuanced, we're different, you know, and we begin to sense that through our bodies. But until that embodiment happens, then these are the conversations that we're having. We actually don't know how to talk about certain things because we actually don't have an experience of ourselves in the moment, you know. And I try to encourage, you know, we talk about, you know, if you read radical drama, like we're not you you begin to see that like in terms of being politically correct like that's not a huge huge edge for us you know you know but it's more about how do we cut through some of the ways in which language around identity um, creates issues for us you know and get to holding space for our own experiences our for ourselves and using that experience to go back and to start establishing collaborations, relationships, and so forth with others around us, you know. Identity can become a really easy way we bypass one another, but on the other hand, identity becomes a way that we can actually see and understand all the different factors and conditions that explain why we show up in the ways that we show up. Yeah, I think... Whatever your orientation is, whatever your tribe is, I do think reactivity 
is the issue and reactivity is so connected to embodiedness. How do we promote more embodiment? How do we promote contemplative practices while also then not falling into the trap of, oh, I'm trying to convert you to Buddhism because I'm Buddhist, or I'm trying to convert you to meditation because I'm into meditation. How can we do that in a a skillful kind of non-obtrusive way? Whoa. I mean, at least for me, I guess in my experiences, I'm not interested in converting anyone. I don't really care. You know, I don't care if you're a Buddhist. I don't care if you're a meditator. What I actually do care about is are you trying to reduce the violence in your life? Are you trying to reduce the violence that you commit in spaces around you? You know, and let's figure out the best way for you to do that work. That's really my ethic, you know, and let's, you know, let's think about contemplative practice. Let's think about mindfulness. Let's think about meditation. You know, let's just start looking at some of these principles of developing awareness and focus that actually can help you to make better decisions about being less violent, you know? And I think that ethic has to be there, that ethic of it's not about you joining me, it's about you being happy, you know? But I want that happiness to be cultivated in a way in which everything is taken into account, you know? I want you to to look at all parts of your life. I want you to look at all the parts of your life that are related to me or interrelated to me. And I want you to to hold space for that. And I want you to be very clear, you know, about how we relate to one another, you know. And I want you to, to articulate ways in which I create harm for you. And I want to articulate ways in which you create harm for me. And I want that back and forth to be present. And from that back and forth, I think that we can gain a clarity that helps us to develop more wisdom about how to live together and reduce the violence on one another. And that reactivity is really important to work with, you know, and I think it goes back to identity politics. It's the shadow side of identity politics, where I'm going to see my, this one, like my nationality, my ethnicity, my race, And I'm going to use that and actually bypass your humanity. But we can have strong identifications with aspects of our identity, but at the same time, we can humanize others around us. We can say, yes, I am black and you're white, but we're still human and we still want to be happy and we want to avoid suffering, you know, but we actually have to be clear about how we're impacting one another through the ways in which we are not bringing full awareness to our lives. So, you know, and you've, you've touched on this a bit, but since we, what you just sort of alluded to it again, your last answer, kind of how do we build on this? What is the way, and there are different roles for people you talked about in white Dharma communities and people of color, you know, sort of going forward, how, what are some kind of do's and don'ts for both people of color and for white people in terms of how to initiate these conversations and within Dharma communities or within, even if it's not a Dharma community, maybe their own community. I think to begin with black and people of color groups and individuals, I think it's important for us to really understand what we need. We have to understand boundaries that, you know, we're not and communities to educate people. We're in particularly Dharma communities to get free, to get the practices, you know, to to train on our paths, 
not to be the, the diversity officer or the inclusivity person. So we need to learn how to draw boundaries and to maintain those boundaries. We need to figure out ways in which we can take care of ourselves, offer ourselves what we need. And sometimes maybe that means we have to leave these communities to do that. Every conversation about race is not our conversation to have. We are experts on our situation, our individual situation, being marginalized and disprivileged within systems of power and how those systems also mirror themselves within Dharma communities as well. Um, I think all that has to be very clear. I think for white practitioners is really, you know, really learning how not to rely on people of color to make you feel better. You know, not to rely on people of color to forgive you, to hold your hand, to continue to help you bypass the violence of whiteness. I think it's important that white communities really begin to to look to one another, to support one another in having this dialogue and to do this work. And now, and right now, currently, there's there's so many resources. There's so many books and videos and and trainings and workshops. And there are so many people, so many white allies who are really good at this work that we can actually partner with or invite into our organizations to help us do this work of undoing whiteness. We have to begin to understand that our liberation ultimately depends on the work that we can do to free ourselves from the violence of whiteness itself. We have to see the social practice as being just as important as all the practices that we're doing ultimately for on the ultimate level, the nature of being and so in, in those teachings. You know, we have to link the importance of all these teachings together. You know, the more work I do to unpack whiteness is the work, the same work that goes in into understanding the the openness, the emptiness of ego itself, you know, and not perhaps the other way around you know, to try to bypass the social, to try to do the work of no ego. You know, I really believe you have to become fully aware of the, the ramifications, the, the characteristics of ego in order to move through ego and to begin to let go of the fixation of ego. So you have to recognize that in order to let it go. As you let go of it, then you're moving into the ultimate. You're moving into the absolute view so all that work really has to be done, and we all have to have a sense that there are certain things that I have to do and there are certain things other people have to do, you know, that sometimes we all can't sit and do the same work together. So that's what I would suggest to different groups within the sangha. Wow, I think that's a really eloquent and really powerful note on which to wrap things up. But before we do so, I want to give you an opportunity to let our audience know about upcoming you know, speaking events or retreats you have or, or anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I have a website, so anyone can go to my website. It's www.lamarad.com, and I have my full schedule on that website. I also have an email list that you can sign up for, and I send out a monthly email just kind of emphasizing some of my events. I just returned from Europe and but plan to head back to London in November. So those dates will be up soon. But before that, um, I have dates coming up in Portland. If you're in Portland, I'll be there at the end of the month. 
I'll be in New York um, the end of June. I'll be down in Durham, North Carolina in October. Um, I'll be in Kansas City, Missouri in November as well. Our Radical Dharma events, we have the National Radical Dharma Boot Camp, which is coming up in August at the Omega Center in Rhinebeck, New York. Um, We also have a Radical Dharma Conversation Camp, which is also in July. We have our Radical Dharma National Boot Camp, July 20th, 20th to the 21st. We have a Radical Dharma Retreat at the Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado, August 10th to the 13th. And we also have our last National Radical Dharma event, the Radical Dharma Conversation Camp, at Omega in August, August 26th to the 31st. So all of these dates are on my website as well for further viewing. Excellent. Lamarad, thank you once again for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It has. And I thank you and I wish you a good evening and hope to meet you in person one day. Awesome. Okay. Take care. Thank you.